0: Chilling, wood spinning, no bentless, Cadillac pimping. It will raise taxes, it will hurt Medicare, it will destroy jobs, and run our nation deeper into debt. Go grilling, liquor spilling, Cadillac
1: pimping. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt.
2: And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Wednesday, January 20th. That was the victor in last night's Senate race in Massachusetts. Republican Scott Brown, you heard at the top, talking about the health care bill in his speech last night. On the podcast today, we have something almost every economist loves.
1: And almost everyone else hates.
2: Well, not everyone, but a lot of people. Okay, but first, a very dramatic planet money indicator. It is 52 percent.
1: Fifty two percent of Massachusetts voters who voted for Republican Scott Brown, who, as you heard, says he does not support the health care reform being considered in Congress right now. And he could be the decisive vote.
2: Which clearly complicates things substantially for the Democrats.
1: Right. So there's all kinds of questions now about whether this means that Democrats might try to go with a version that the Senate has already passed and get it through really quickly and then modify it later.
2: Or whether they might force a vote on a bill before Brown gets sworn in. Either way, they're going to need to figure out what the bill looks like, you know, what parts of the bill they want to take from the Senate version and what parts they want to take from the House version. And to do that. They need more time.
1: But now it's unclear if they have it. And today on the podcast, we wanted to look at why those differences have been so hard to reconcile, particularly one of them, one of the major rifts, the Cadillac tax and, David, I have been kind of obsessed about this tax because it's something that, you know, the majority of economists really love it, which is unusual for economists to love a tax.
2: The Cadillac tax, it's, its by the way, in the Senate version of the bill. It's there to help pay for the cost of the health care bill. The health care bills expand coverage to all the, a lot of the people who don't have it now under Medicaid, and it offers subsidies, financial help to people who are – Not very poor, but still can't afford insurance. Anyway, we have to pay for that somehow. And the Senate bill proposes one of the ways to raise some money is to tax really expensive health insurance benefits. So the tax would be on the uh, provider of the insurance, but it would presumably raise the costs for the employer and then eventually for the employees also. So the tax would be on plans that cost total, what your employer pays and you together, more than $8,500 a year for an individual. So if say NPR pays... More than $8,500 a year for your benefits, anything above that $8,500 would be taxed at 40%.
1: Labor unions hate this tax because it turns out that a lot of the people who have those Cadillac benefits are union members, not necessarily rich people, but people who have given up higher wages over the years for really good health benefits, really good and really expensive health benefits, and benefits that they do not want to pay more for.
2: Economists like the idea, not because it raises money. They like it because there's this quirk about the way health insurance works in this country that they've always really, really hated. And it's something they say encourages employers to make really weird and bad decisions and encourages us to make bad decisions. And that is the fact that our benefits and our health care benefits are not taxed, but our wages are taxed.
1: Yeah, I talked to Jonathan Gruber. He's an economist at MIT. And we talked all about this. He is sort of the main economist out there arguing for the Cadillac tax. And he says, economists see this as a really central reason that healthcare costs rise so quickly. We get these really big plans that cover everything. And we don't have to pay very much for them. We, the workers, you know, our employers pay a lot for them, but we don't have to pay very much to go and get Healthcare services, and that encourages us to get too much done, to see the doctor too much.
3: That's been known for years to lead to excessive health insurance coverage, that is people buy too much health insurance because it's subsidized in this way, and ultimately to lead to higher health care costs. And it's huge. It adds up to about $250 billion a year in foregone tax revenue that are providing to people to subsidize them to buy excessive insurance.
1: What is too much health benefits? How can you have too much health coverage?
3: Uh, That's a great question. You can have too much health coverage because ultimately uh, health coverage is not free. So if you have health coverage that covers all your medical spending, what we call first dollar coverage, that leads you to use health care beyond the point which you need to to maintain your health. As a result, you end up paying more for health insurance than you need to. And we as a nation end up spending more for health care. We know in America that about a third of the health care we deliver is not necessary. Now, we don't quite know how to get rid of that third, but we do know is a place to start is to make consumers recognize the cost of consuming excess medical care.
1: And David, John Gruber, he, he is sort of the economic champion of the Cadillac tax, but that argument, it's... Complicated. No one would say it's a very sexy argument. Economists, you know, make their points about the Cadillac tax with graphs and with long papers and editorials with a ton of (laughs) bullet points in them. And they cannot seem to convince the public.
2: One reason is that the, the counter argument, it is so much easier to connect with. Labor unions, they kill at making the counter argument. They don't talk about taxes or show graphs. They have simple, clear ads with sympathetic characters.
4: I have asthma, and I've had it since I was um, probably 10, 12 years old, and it seems to be progressively getting worse. My union bargain great benefits for my family and I, but it's still tough. I pay over $1,500 a year for my medications, and I need those medications to live. And no, we're not rich. Uh, um, middle-class, average American We need health care reform to lower costs and make sure people are covered. But health care reform has to be fair. When I heard some senators wanted to tax their health care benefits, I just couldn't believe it. I support health care reform, but I I can't afford that. It's going to affect me monthly. I'm on a budget. And it's just going to be terrible. We need to tell the Senate that taxing benefits is not the way to health care reform.
1: So we know that you all can't see that ad. You can sort of picture this blonde woman with her two kids. In southwestern Virginia, there's mountains. They show her with her asthma medications. Um, Her name is Valerie Castle Stanley. She's an AT&T worker in southwestern Virginia, and she is someone whose benefits would be taxed. Her employer pays a lot for her benefits, and they would be taxed under the Cadillac plan. And I told John Gruber about her. You know, I actually sent this ad to him, and he said, all right, fine. I can tell personal stories, too.
3: The other weekend, I uh, hurt my knee playing tennis. And I wasn't sure if it was really hurt or just I should just stay off it for a day or two. And I went to the emergency room, because why not? It cost me $75. That's not much to me. Uh, They x-rayed it. They said, it's fine. Just stay off it for a day or two. I should have stayed off it for a day or two before going to the emergency room. I shouldn't have gone that day. That's exact a lot of what makes makes medical care expensive.
1: But what's wrong with going that day? The fact that the X ray is, is quite expensive and you don't actually see the cost. Exactly.
3: It cost me seventy five dollars. That that visit probably cost my insurance company five hundred to a thousand dollars. That's cost that they then have to pass on everyone else in the higher price of insurance.
1: So, John, there are many people who hear this argument, including our engineer here sitting on the other side of the glass who is shaking his head angrily, who hate the argument that people consume more healthcare because they don't see cost, that they consume more than they need, that they intentionally go and try to spend a lot of money. That idea makes a lot of people crazy. What do you make of that response?
3: You know, um, I totally understand that response, and this is why we're called the dismal science economists, because we like to point out uncomfortable truths. The best response I can give to that is, while it may sound unintuitive, there's enormous volumes of research to support that it is true, that basically when you charge individuals more for their health care, they use less health care, and they're in no worse health. And... There's just time after time again where we've cut back in the amount of health care people get, and their health is not any worse. Now, there's limits. If you take someone who's insured and make them uninsured, that will affect their health. Conversely, if you take an uninsured person and make them insured, that will improve their health. And I think ultimately the thing to express to your engineer and to others is that given the fixed pie we have to allocate, if we have people like the woman who works for AT&T go to the doctor a little less – and that gives us the money to get someone who's currently uninsured and not going at all to go to the doctor. Some overall society is so much better off.
1: So, David, I just have to interject here because this whole interview was so weird. So, so when we talk, you know, John is in his house in Massachusetts, and we're talking over this phone line. And I'm in the studio in New York and, and here in New York we have these glass walls around us um, and they're engineers sitting on the other side of it. And normally they're, you know, just sitting at their board. They're making the sound sound beautiful. A lot of times they're not even really listening to the content. But this interview, John Gruber, he's going on about how the Cadillac text is good. And my engineer, Neil Rausch, is sitting on the other side of the glass and he's getting all worked up. And he can, you know, he's waving his arms and he's shaking his head and, and he can actually talk into my Headphones, so John can't hear and he's telling me, what? Like that doesn't make any sense. You know, ask him about this, ask him about this. Um and at some point I just think like this this is the problem. Like economists make their arguments to reporters and they make arguments in editorials and studies, but really they have to convince everyone out there who has health insurance, people you know who pay more than they want to pay for it already. People go bankrupt because of health care costs. They have to convince them that they want this tax. So so I'm like, eventually, I'm so distracted. I just said, Neil, just ask him yourself. So, John, this is Neil. Hi,
0: John. Hi, Neil. All right. Um, well, let me, a couple of things, okay? Now, I'm not a reporter. I'm an engineer, so I'm just kind of – it's just stuff that's going through my head here. Let me let me uh, ask you a question about this thing with your knee. Okay. Let's look – suppose you decided to wait a couple of days. Right. Okay? And then it turns out that the complication developed because you didn't go right away, making things much more expensive besides having an effect on your health. An example of that is my son got hit in the eye with a soccer ball, and we were going to wait to see the pediatrician. This was on a weekend. We made a call to the doctor. Doctor said, actually, you should go to the emergency room, and it turned out his eyesight would have been endangered had we not done that. So maybe you should at least consult your doctor, whoever's on call for your doctor, before you run to the emergency room, unless it's really obviously an emergency, maybe we could put that as a requirement.
1: And, Neil, the point that you're, you're making there is if it had cost, you know, $500 for you right. to go immediately, then you might not have gone.
3: Uh, it, yeah. But, yeah well, we exactly. all, but we did ask the doctor, though. And, and, and Neil, I, th- I think what we can agree is there's a smarter way. There is a smart way to do this, which is you should have asked your doctor. I should have asked my doctor. But my doctor was programmed to just say go to the emergency room. I did ask my doctor. My doctor said go to the emergency room because why the hell not? Okay. But if your doctor recognizes that there's financial implications, then presumably when there's a risk to your eyesight, they'd say, look, you should go. Even if it's going to cost you $400, the risk to your eyesight. Whereas to me, they'd say, look, you know, it's your knee. It's not worth a few hundred dollars. You know, give it a couple days.
0: But then we need to uh, encourage doctors to be a little more prudent. with.
3: Exactly. Absolutely. We need to encourage doctors to be more prudent. But the point is, the only way to do that is to invest the patient as well in the decision, which is ultimately the only way to control healthcare costs to get doctors to behave differently. But you know what? We can't make that work unless patients have some skin in the game. And so once again, you know, when it comes down to people say to me, why not use the House instead of the Senate? Look, I'd be for a healthy mix of the two. But at the end of the day, if we're going to control costs in America, we're going to have to try some things which may feel a little uncomfortable. To be this honest, is one of them.
0: To be honest with you, waiting around an emergency room for hours and paying, I don't know if it's 50 or $100 that we have to, to copay for an emergency room, whether the doctor says to go there or not, was enough motivation for me not to want to go there unless the doctor said it was necessary. I don't need to have to have $500 hanging over me. 50 is enough waiting around an emergency room. I don't like going to the doctor. I don't like going to right. the hospital. I don't like taking medicines or having procedures that are necessary. I don't need to have a big cost as my motivation to avoid unnecessary uh, care.
3: Right. Uh, Look, I mean, I I, I hear you, but once again here I can only point to the evidence which says that many people are not like you and that when you put the cost on them, they will avoid unnecessary care.
0: And necessary care too.
3: And necessary care. Well, once again, what's necessary? In other words, the point is necessary care, I would define as care that affects your health. But once again, there's studies which show that when you put the costs on people, their health is no worse. They're not reducing care, which is endangering their health. I don't know
0: anybody who thinks that way.
3: Well, I mean, you know, there may not be people who think that way, but that's the only evidence we have.
1: At this point, David, John Gruber sort of says to Neil, okay, you know, we disagree on this argument. But even if you don't buy that argument, I have another argument that is going to Push you over to my side.
2: And this is a favorite argument of economists, and it's that the Cadillac tax, hey, it could increase your pay. And the argument goes like this basically, your employer right now pays a lot for these expensive Cadillac health benefits. But if the tax forces them to offer cheaper plans, that means your employer would have extra money for your paycheck. This is a kind of thing where, you know, I,
3: there are a few things which economists sort of just have a hard time understanding why non economists don't get because it's so much in our blood. But one of those is that there's a trade off between wages and fringe benefits, and that trade off works both ways. When the cost of fringe benefits go up, workers get paid less. When the cost of fringe benefits go down, workers get paid more. You see it explicitly in union negotiations. There's a number of examples of unions which have said, look, we decided we'd give back some of the health insurance to get higher wages for our workers. In some sense it's There's no reason it wouldn't work that way.
1: So at this point, Neil, our engineer, again, is waving his arms and and talking to my headphones, you know, which I mentioned to John Gruber, saying this still, like, another point. He is not convinced by this point. And John proceeds to run over to his computer in his house and say, OK, you don't believe me? I have data. There are studies. Let me just print them out.
3: Oh Well, now the printer's going. Just wait one minute.
1: How many pages is the paper? I meant to print
3: one, but I printed 12. Okay, okay. So, so for example, as this report says, Ask Me, which is the, uh, a, um, one of the big unions that's opposing the Cadillac tax, has been quoted as saying, reform reduces healthcare costs and provides more money for wages. Uh, then there's a quote from the California Federation of Teachers, which says the healthcare cost spiral is forcing no-win choices upon the bargaining table. Do we negotiate a modest wage increase but take on employee copays that reduce or eliminate the wage increase or accept flat wages in return for keeping health care cost increases at bay. Okay. And then the Madison teachers said more money would be available for wages if the Madison teachers switched to HMOs that provided coverage. So basically, even the unions which are opposed to this admit that there's a trade-off and that if you can get health care costs down, wages will go up. Now, you know, Can I prove that to you? You know, I'm reminded of a baseball player that played for the Red Sox named Carl Everett. Carl Everett said he didn't believe in dinosaurs because he'd never seen one walking around. Um, At some level, we have to take evidence uh, uh, as fact. And the evidence from numerous studies are that there is this trade-off between health insurance costs and wages.
1: Are you convinced, Neil?
3: So the evidence
0: that you have... Is it anything as firm as dinosaur bones?
3: The evidence I have is not as firm as dinosaur theoretical, bones. theoretical, right? No, no. It, it's fact-based. So, for example, what I have is I have two types of evidence, okay? What I have that's most convincing is I have a number of examples of times where health insurance costs have gone up and wages have gone down one for one. Now, I realize that's different than what we're talking about here, but I'm going to make a sequential argument for you, Okay. That is as close to dinosaur bones as we get in the social sciences, okay? I can point to you of examples where the cost of health insurance have gone up for a firm and they've paid their workers less, okay? That's the first step. It's not dinosaur bones, but it's it's the data equivalent. What I don't have, I will admit, is I don't have that kind of evidence. For examples, I don't have those kind of facts I can point you to of where the cost of health insurance went down and wages went up. I will admit I do not. No one's written a really compelling study of that because we have a pretty high standard.
0: And I think you need to really take into account the power that employers have, much more so than over employees. And even if they will, let's say they lower the amount they pay towards uh, health benefits, maybe they'll give some back in in uh, wages. But I really, on a big scale. I really doubt that's going to happen.
1: And, and Neil, okay. why, why? why does that seem suspect to you?
0: Because the employers will have a great uh, motivation to siphon off some of that for their profits or to lower their costs, which they may very well have done when they lowered wages to raise health benefits. You know, it's hard to get exact figures from employers. But I have also a couple of other
3: Wait, I'm sorry, Herberts? John,
1: can you just respond to yeah, that? Yeah,
3: but w- w- what about those union quotes, Neil? I and mean, what about the unions essentially admitting that they're making this trade-off in their wage negotiations? Well,
0: again, is, how much equivalency is there?
3: Well, I mean, uh, you're right. F- the unions are not saying one for one, but they're basically saying more money beveled be for wages if they switch to cheaper health plans. Right, now, it, the,
0: it may go in the other direction, but the, the, it goes anywhere near the equivalent amount – that I really doubt. And it depends on the power of a particular union, which are much weaker than they've been in uh, the past.
2: Hannah, I think listening to that and, and looking at Neil again through the glass here, <laughs> I think he was not satisfied. He was cheering his own side.
1: Yeah, he's still shaking his head when John Gruber talks. And and the point that Neil kept asking is, you know, what if John Gruber is wrong? What if we have this tax and middle class people have to pay more for health benefits and they don't get it back in wages? But John Gruber says, OK, even if he's wrong about the wages argument, there are still really good things in the tax.
3: If I'm right and it goes to wages, it's a win-win. If I'm wrong, it doesn't go to wages, then you're right. The woman in Northern Virginia will pay more tax. But in society, if we want to help the uninsured, we've got to raise the money somehow.
1: So, so Neil, are you at all convinced
0: You know, I don't, like I said, I don't run to the doctor. Oh, it's only $15, I think I'll go to the the doctor today. I think that's absurd. Uh, I don't know anybody who who does that, who runs to the doctor. If anything, people tend just don't want to go because they just don't like it.
1: John, are you at all convinced by anything Neil is saying?
3: I mean, I think, you know, it's been a very helpful conversation. I I wouldn't say I've convinced in terms of changing what I believe to be true. I think we're often too glib on things we believe deeply. And, and I think it's—I think Neil's pointed out a very helpful way for me to make my point, which is to say that I believe it's going to result in higher wages, and so it's really a win-win. But to understand, but I, th- I think what I would do to, to appeal to people who don't and just don't agree with that, which is you know a fine position to hold, is that look, the other thing people are complaining about with this bill is that it doesn't do enough for cost control, and if we're going to control costs, we're going to have to take on some difficult issues, and this is one of them. The only tool to control costs that's actually been endorsed by the official government scores, that I think, given the importance of cost control in this bill, should be part of the package. Neil, is that helpful?
2: You know, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, you did not make peace.
1: No, ma'am, but you know, Congress has not figured this out yet either. So the fact that Planet Money failed to make peace between these two minds, I think, is, is not... end of the world. Let
2: us know if you are convinced. Um, Email us. You can reach us at planetmoney at npr.org.
1: You can also comment on our blog, npr.org slash money, where you can hear more from Valerie Stanley Castle, the woman in the ad, um, the labor union ad. We actually went to Virginia and sat her down with an economist and said to the economist, convince her. And you can go hear it online and see if it turned out any differently than our engineer with John Gruber today. I'm Khanna Jaffe-Walt.
2: And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening.